my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about one of our favorite rats ever to direct some movies. Yes, the great Elia Kazan. Listen, he had to name names. <laughs> yeah, they were corrupt. They were the totalitarian left. What are we talking about right from the get-go? People may be wondering. Anyone who follows Zoe Kazan on Twitter knows uh, Elia Kazan in 1952 named names for the House Un-American Activities, ratting out former comrades that he knew in the 1930s New York theater. Kazan himself for a year was a member of the Communist Party, didn't last very long in it. And then he heroically, you know, to save his own career, named the names of some, I don't know, frickin' playwrights, you know, Cliff Odets and some other guys like that. Some, you know, some real dangers to this country. And we should say that Kazan, he wasn't just a member of the Communist Party for a year. The plays that he made were all socially liberal. They were all about what should be good for society. And he kind of tackled that in his movies as well, afterwards and before. But that thing stained his entire career and also the way that he acted behind the scenes, which was as a real garbage monster as well. And can I just say the movies that he made after naming names much better? (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I would agree as well. I mean, that's where all of his classics come from. I mean, I know we didn't watch it for this podcast on the waterfront amazing movie it's you know it's a masterpiece i think Ilya kazan has made several solid gold masterpieces i think a face in the crowd is also wonderful he's also made a lot of you know pretty good weepies and melodramas some uh you know kind of normal and not all that interesting movies and some movies that don't have much impact anymore so it's a uh, a checkered career i would say but you cannot deny that Elia Kazan is one of the most important directors in the history of film for what he brought to acting. And you can't deny that clearly he completely cleared his name was on the waterfront, which was supposed to be from his perspective. Yeah, it's like when you think about it, Lee J. Cobb as the sinister union leader, he was exactly like um, Clifford Odets. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Who had so much power and was completely running things. That great communist group during the blacklist but can i just say justin you can always depend on the kindness of strangers <laughs> to pick up your spirits and shield you from dangers now here's a tip from blanche you won't regret streetcar <laughs> i'm certain like you the first time i ever heard about a streetcar named desire was watching the simpsons and when i finally saw a streetcar named desire when i was i want to say 25 maybe up until then i always thought the ending was happy like i thought kindness of strangers was a good thing and then i saw the movie (laughs) it's like oh that kind of stranger that kind of kindness so when you talk about something like a streetcar named desire and most of the movies that we're going to be uh, tackling on this episode the thing that kazan is the most famous for is bringing that real that method to the screen the power by channeling someone like marlon brando in front of the lens so marlon brando along with james dean and warren Beatty, is one of Elia kazan's big discoveries marlon brando the actor who as we all know is more than any other actor associated with the method. And Elia Kazan is the director more than any other director who's associated with method acting. These are, of course, the teachings of Konstantin Stanislavski from Russia and Stella Adler from New York. And method acting is something that 
well, it's a term that's been used and abused a lot over the years. It's very closely associated with people like Jim Carrey and Jared Leto now. Yeah, it's for <laughs> hacks that want to make themselves feel more serious, you right? You know, not very good actors who want to terrorize other people. But, but no, back in the day, what it originally meant and still actually means is instead of simulating the emotions on screen, actually like trying to channel real emotions and and trying to really like feel the part. As opposed to, you know, acting and doing a job. I mean, I mean, yes, but what can you say? You look at Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire and acting was never the same. Before that, acting... I mean, there are, of course, many, many great actors, many different kinds of acting. And of course, in various countries, there are people who acted a lot like Marlon Brando, too. But Marlon Brando was the one who focalized it. And after him, acting was never the same. Acting became messier. Acting became more raw. It didn't it didn't feel as much like a technical exercise as it did when you watch somebody like, I don't know, Clark Gable. No disrespect to Clark Gable. I mean, when you watch A Streetcar Named Desire, the Marlon Brando character comes off as an animal. Like he's going to burst off of the screen. There is nothing phony about his performance watching it today, which is not always the case when you watch classic Hollywood and that there is, you know, certain patterns and certain kind of stylistic tics that actors use to kind of communicate through the screen. Marlon Brando, all of that is gone because it is just him right there. Yes, playing the working class, brutish animal house husband. Well, not a house husband. He works, uh, but hanging around the house a lot. Stanley Kowalski. I still remember seeing A Streetcar Named Desire for the first time because, I mean, before I saw A Streetcar Named Desire, I probably didn't like, I didn't fully understand Marlon Brando, I think. You know, I obviously had seen The Godfather and a couple of other ones, but it's like when you when you when you see him in that movie, I, I still remember seeing him just being like kind of amazed by the sheer like force of his screen presence. He is very raw and he allows his body this full range of motion like he's constantly throwing in odd bits of business. It's unpredictable what he will do with himself. And like you can practically smell him. And it should be noted that Kazan had done A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway. So what's interesting about the transposition to the screen is that it's not like raw, like Cassavetes or anything like that. It's really the dissonance between the beautiful kind of atmospheric staging and a performance like Brando's. Yeah, I mean, I think Elia Kazan is so closely associated with acting that it can be easy to forget that he is a good director in other ways. I think his films often have a great pictorial eye. I think his films are often very atmospheric. This one and A Face in the Crowd both have a great sense of like sweltering in the heat of the South with like, you know, people sitting around poker tables and, and you know, the, the cigarette smoke everywhere. You, you just you just kind of like feel the cigarette smoke in your hair and you, you always see like fans going off in the yeah, background. Yeah, haze just covers the screen from left to right. And some of the other ones we watched this week too, like he makes great use of the widescreen frame. He uses the widescreen frame in a very intimate way. Kazan really wanted to push things in his movies. Like before making Streetcar Named Desire, he made one of the first films to tackle anti-Semitism, which he actually said he didn't like the movie 
but he still won an Academy Award for Best Director. Well, his only Academy Award uh, competitive Oscar, that is. Here's just a little bit about Ilya Kazan's life to put him in context. You may wonder, why would a man rat out his friends? And it's because, well, you know, he was anxious about being called anti-American because he himself was an immigrant. He was born in Istanbul in 1909, moved to New York in 1913, came from a working class upbringing. His father was a rug salesman. I mean, eventually he went to a pretty high-toned school, but felt himself looked down upon by his waspier peers. So he fucked a lot. He also got together with those lefties and he formed a kind of commune that would put on plays. And he wanted to be an actor. He actually showed up in a bunch of movies, too, when he and his pals moved to Hollywood and they started putting plays and chasing that big screen star. He became a theater director himself in the 40s. Some of his original productions included Death of a Salesman. He was the first director to direct Death of a Salesman, as well as A Streetcar Named Desire. I I read somewhere, it's interesting. He was the one, if you read the Tennessee Williams play, Stanley Kowalski comes across as very much a secondary character. It's Blanche Dubois' show in the play. But Ilya Kazan was very interested in the Kowalski character and like through through his his force and Brando's force kind of made him the co-lead. I should say, though, that while he was directing plays, he also became a film director, made many high profile films, many of which like those 1940s ones are kind of forgotten today. He won Best Director for A Gentleman's Agreement, which is a movie that I saw when I was much younger because the library had it. And there's there's not much to it. You know, it's a pretty standard, like, liberal Hollywood, boring drama. And then the Streetcar Named Desire movie in 1951 changed everything. And the movie pushed buttons because the whole play, its big, climactic, controversial moment is the rape of Stella by the Stanley character. And Kazan fought for it in the film. And, you know, what he was able to get past the censors, which was considered a victory at the time, was like a mirror smashing in the background. Some of the footage was later restored for video. Footage that was cut by the censors. I mean, I I guess it also would have been controversial because of the whole revelation that Blanche Dubois is a prostitute. By the way, we didn't summarize the film. And I don't think we did. Don't you hear me, Yella? Stella! You mentioned Cassavetes, and seen today, I think A Streetcar Named Desire feels a bit like a transitional film. I know when it came out, it was considered like such a breakthrough in realism. And the two central performances, which I think are both great performances uh, in their way, like I didn't used to think Vivian Lee was all that good, but like, I don't know, on this viewing, her performance opened up for me that this woman who comes across a little bit like spoiled fruit maybe that's an unkind way to put it but she she evokes the kind of desperation that a woman of a certain age might feel when you look at her performance it's tough not to see it as kind of like really hammy right that's what i was trying to get around to it's like there's a weird clash between these two performance styles what's interesting is that near the end her performance shifts when she breaks character and starts acting in a way that's not as big as it was before creating that kind of reflection of like oh all the stuff before that was her kind of in a mode to the public trying to be someone else and now in these very brief moments she can be herself until the very you know downer ending where things completely shift and she is helped by the kindness of strangers on this viewing i actually found that though that vivian lee and marlon brando worked well together because even though they're contrasting performance styles they're still both really big 
like Marlon Brando may be naturalistic, but he's such an aggressive force on the screen that I, th- I, and you know, they, they should clash in a way. Well, if you, if Vivian Lee was playing it more demure, then Marlon Brando would just stomp all over her. She needs to reach up to his height and she can't do it in ferocity. So she has to do it in almost campiness in the way that she kind of, you know, presents herself throughout the picture. So this was around the time that he named names. And then uh, I have a quote here from David Thompson, who, you know, I'd ra- I would rather not quote David. <laughs> Your favorite critic. <laughs> I'd rather not quote him, but I actually think he made a good point. He said, if you read his 1988 autobiography, A Life, you will feel his agony. You will hear of the old friends who never spoke to him again. And you realize how Kazan was haunted by the incident as long as he lived. But if you look at the films that followed, On the Waterfront, East of Eden, Baby Doll, A Face in the Crowd, Wild River, Splendor in the Grass, America, America, it is hard to deny the argument that testifying and being rebuked mature Kazan's creative vision. I mean, the the movies after they have a different kind of emotional charge. They feel rawer. Is it like a self righteous anger though? Because he feels he was wronged for doing what he did. Definitely. I think that fueled On the Waterfront, and yet you can't argue with On the Waterfront. No, you can't. And it's only when someone actually explains the position that it's coming from that you're like, oh, gross, what? So we watched two other films this week, which each feature one of Kazan's great discoveries. We watched East of Eden, which was the first film to star James Dean, and the only one of his three starring films released during his lifetime. I'd never seen this one before. Me neither. All right. So let's take a little Dean break here, a Dean corner, if you will. What do you say of James Dean? I don't know if I really get him, to be honest. What a ham. That's what I say. (laughs) I I think you had to be there. (laughs) Don't you feel like James Dean in our lifetimes has diminished as as a cultural force? Yes, I would say so. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like, okay, there are some people like Bruce Lee is like bigger than he's ever been now. He's still a very powerful cultural icon he transcends time because there was something so unusual about him and also you know various issues that he represented you know his philosophy of the martial arts or what he represented to asian representation or this and that james dean was kind of like the ultimate disaffected teenager who died too young and kind of every generation gets its own teenage archetype and the ones from before feel a little less raw and real it's like james dean is still charismatic he's still handsome but he doesn't really feel contemporary anymore and i think that's a sent that was essential to his appeal but if you look at something like east of eden kind of like marlon brando's performance dean feels like he is in another universe from the way that everybody else is acting but, but because it's not the same character as Brando's playing, it sometimes feels just, you know, ham central, where it's like, does he need to be like this big right here all the time? I, w- I kept having to put myself in the frame of mind of like watching this for the first time in the 50s. I'm thinking, well, look at the way that James Dean is kind of leaning against a door right now. People hadn't seen a guy lean against a door like that. <laughs> so yeah, real like that. and raw, like like Clark Gable. He stood up straight. 
But this guy, this guy was lean. He's sweating. He's just jumping from foot to foot. He stutters through his lines. I mean, Montgomery Clift was also doing that, and so was Brando in some way. But not like James Dean, of all people. You know, it's a good comparison point. We should actually compare and contrast the other film that we watch, A Splendor in the Grass, which was made a decade after East of Eden. And they both deal with the same thing, which is like, how do you live under the shadow of controlling parents and, you know, how that affects you and in essence breaks you as well. Yeah, Splendor in the Grass features a young, fresh-faced Warren Beatty alongside Natalie Wood. They play, well, they start the film as two teenagers. And they just want to fuck! They want to fuck so bad! They just, they just want to fuck, but their moralistic parents say they shouldn't fuck. Natalie Wood's mother is always freaking out about her losing her purity. She insists that, you know, a woman doesn't enjoy that sort of thing. She saves it for marriage, and even in marriage, she, she just sort of grits her teeth and bears it. And uh, Warren Beatty's father, played by the great Pat Hingle, who definitely does not look like Warren Beatty's... Commissioner Gordon himself? That's right. And I, by the way, I thought Pat Hingle was great in this movie. <laughs> uh, I would say Pat Hingle looks about like 20 years older than he does in Batman, the Tim Burton one, <laughs> in this that movie. That scene towards the end where, where he... So good. His last scene where he and Beatty are in the nightclub. I think Pat Hingle is heartbreaking in that scene. I, I thought he was amazing. You know, I didn't think Warren Beatty was all that amazing. But anyway... I mean, Warren Beatty is kind of like a weird cipher compared to everyone around him, right? Because Natalie Wood is giving this complex character. Warren Beatty just, he wants to have a ranch and he wants to farm and that's pretty much it, but he's not allowed to do it. It's interesting that this movie launched Beatty to stardom because I don't think he has, at least here, he has the charisma of James Dean or Marlon Brando. He doesn't, he doesn't radiate off the screen for me. He, he just seems kind of like a pretty boy. But I mean, this is Natalie Wood's show because she has to thread the needle of allowing these kind of emotions to destroy her life and to take the audience with her, which I think she does, without kind of like, uh, you know, the reaction because we're watching it in film form is to go, why are people reacting like this? The way she plays it, I feel like she sells these emotions. Hey, I'll tell you whose show it is. It's Barbara Loden's, uh, the real life Mrs. Kazan, playing Ginny, Warren Beatty's sister, who I think she's amazing in this movie. I would have loved to see more of her. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Kazan doesn't want you to see uh, too much of Mrs. Loden, because as we talked about in an episode we did a long time ago, he did everything in his power to tank her career. I can't quite even remember this. I, I used to know this, but what was it that he did to her? I don't remember the exact details, but he kind of did like a Clint Eastwood where he like made sure that she basically couldn't work that much. Not long ago I watched Kazan's last movie I think it was The Last Tycoon with Robert De Niro which you know it's interesting that Robert De Niro's in it. It's a testament to how influential Kazan's work with, with actors was and I mean, he is, by all accounts, was by all accounts, a great actor's director who not only made actors feel good on the set, but also knew how to manipulate them really well. You mean emotionally torture them so he could get the performance out of them that would be good for the camera? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you read about the making of East of Eden, where it's like, there, there are scenes in that movie where like D James Dean has like emotional breakdowns where he really did have emotional breakdowns on camera. It actually makes me want to watch the movie again as like a Mondo movie <laughs> or like or like some of the some of the confrontational scenes like James Dean, for instance, would actually be be really bad to his father played by Raymond Massey or 
was bad to Raymond Massey off the set of the movie to kind of provoke him into having a really tense relationship with him on screen. Not good. Please don't do that, actors. <laughs> well, listen, you can't you can't argue with the results. Uh, yeah, maybe you can. Maybe you can. But anyway, I, I saw the last tycoon, and it was it was fascinating to watch because I thought it was really bad. And Robert De Niro stars in it, and he's testifying to the influence of Kazan. It's hard to imagine Robert De Niro existing without the work that Kazan did with Brando. And he plays an Irving Thalberg-type Hollywood wonderkind. He and Kazan made the strange decision to underplay the role. Why do you think that is? Because like Kazan's filmography is all based around a kind of raw realism that is mostly centered around big showy performances and then near in these last film he decides ah robert de niro who can do that let's tone him down completely it's a very strange decision and it's a catastrophic decision really i mean it's such a it's such an inert movie and it's a strange way for kazan to have ended his career given everything else he did everything like a movie like baby doll for instance or a movie like a face in the crowd where like there's just like this crescendo of emotion and you f- you feel like you're sitting in 110 degree weather watching them. That's the thing with Kazan is that, you know, he did tons of bad stuff in his life, but you look at these movies and they're so raw and real, undeniably powerful. I mean, they are not movies that I return to that much other than on the waterfront, but... You know, I watch East of Eden, and even though that there's a dissonance between my reaction and James Dean's acting, I can't deny what's right up there on screen. And they're interesting to watch now after the passage of time because they feel like the midpoint between that John Cassavetes style and Hollywood melodrama style. It's like it feels, at its best, it feels like the best of both worlds colliding. But I love that stuff because you got like... In Splendor of the Grass, the beautiful Technicolor photography, and then like a wild Natalie Wood performance in the center of it that seems to almost want to break out of these confines that Hollywood has defined. Now, when you were preparing for this episode, did you revisit the clip where he wins the Lifetime Achievement Oscar? I did not. You're talking about the one where uh, a lot of people don't stand when he goes and uh, takes the Oscar? It's amazing to watch because like, I remember this happening at the time. I remember there was a whole drumbeat in the press of like, are people gonna not clap? And when you watch the clip, you know, maybe half the audience stands up and applauds. And whenever the camera goes in on their faces, they look kind of defiant. There's like a. It doesn't look like people standing to normally give a standing ovation. Who are the people that are standing? Do you remember? Warren Beatty was one of them. Let me see. I think um, the only one. uh, The only other one I remember right now is Kurt Russell. I don't know why I remember him, but there were there were a lot of a lot of famous people you know. What about the ones that sat? There were two that the camera caught who didn't applaud. One of them was Ed Harris, and the other one was Nick Nolte. Nice. <laughs> Even better than that is the middle ground, which are the people who sat but applauded. Ooh. A lot of people, probably a plurality of people, like Steven Spielberg or Jim Carrey. The Citizen Kane <laughs> applauding thing. What that means is I'm not committing to anything. That means I don't want to be on the news tomorrow as having not applauded, so I'm going to do this middle ground thing that's beautiful there hasn't really been any moments like that recently at those kind of event ceremonies these yeah, days i mean if the oscars were good maybe they could have done a tribute to you know the victims of the blacklist No, they're never gonna do that all right so as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com 
And our first letter is from Quinn Henderson. It goes, hey, Will and Justin. I'm a fairly recent listener of the, of the podcast, but I've been really enjoying it as of late. I'm a recent transplant to Toronto and was using your conversations as a great way to pass the time on my commute. That is, of course, before everything got shut down again. Because Toronto sucks. <laughs> or Ontario sucks. All of Canada sucks. That's me saying that. The letter did not say that. <laughs> Listen, our premier... Not a good man. Doug Ford, yeah, I don't I don't care for him. We don't like to get too political on here, folks, but uh, Doug Ford, we do not endorse. I mean, we are political on this thing. I guess we just did the rat Kazan. Do you think that we have listeners that are like, wait a minute, they are left-leaning people? <laughs> no, thank you. I don't want any politics in my discussions of people like Clint Eastwood or Luc Moulet. So the letter continues. Anyway, my question regards a concept I thought about, but I have a hard time articulating. It's when you're watching something and there's a performance that by all indicators is bad, on a purely a technical level, flat wouldn't out of step with the other performers, but nevertheless somehow works. Not in spite of the fact that it is bad, but almost because it is bad. I remember my first experience of this was watching the 90s Brana-directed Much Ado About Nothing, where Keanu Reeves plays the villain, Don Juan, and is just giving this affectless mechanical performance. I was like, wow, he is being outclassed by everyone else. Yet it also worked for me. I was later illuminated by a letterbox review from the popular Twitter cartoonist Branson Reese, which is Justin speaking, Branson Reese, hilarious cartoons, where he says, Keanu is extremely well cast as Shakespeare's flattest and least interesting villain. His instant gear is completely right. This guy basically just scowls and announces his evilness, so I'm not going to break my back trying to figure out this whole deal. Another example might be the leading men in Luton's films, who really are just bad actors. But it doesn't matter, because they convincingly are, as Will says in that episode, people that things happen to. Anyway, my question is, can you guys think of any of these So Bad It Works performances? Keep up the good work. All the best, Quinn. You know, weirdly, the first name that comes to mind is Steven Seagal. <laughs> I'm talking early Seagal, like above the law, hard to kill era, because he is he is bad, but there's a unique screen personality there. He's bad in a very strange way. I mean, this question is very specific in the sense that it's like not movies that are so weird that like that's what you have a reaction to, for example, Ed Wood or things, but like a performance that is bad in a movie that is good, but it works just in the context of performance. You know what I'm going to say? Matthew Fox and Speed Racer, in that by any metric, his performance would be considered bad. But within the context of this like big anime, it works. I mean, Emil Hirsch as well. He's very wooden in that film. But within the context of Speed Racer, mm, perfection. 100%. Sounds like a good performance. That's why the word bad is, is tricky, isn't it? It's tough to say, right? That's like if you saw a clip removed from it, it would look bad. But, like, within the context of the whole thing, it works. I mean, the one person people would bring up is Nicolas Cage, right? Does he ever give a performance that breaks the kind of universe of the film, but it works within the context of the film? I think oftentimes he does the opposite of sure. that. I mean, there are a lot of actors, too. Like, there have been many times when movies have used non-actors as kind of, like, found art objects, almost. The first one that comes to mind right now is, have you ever seen The Outlaw, Josie Wales? A long time ago. Aboriginal actor Chief Dan Joel. George, who plays like Josie Wales' sidekick, who's like kind of amazing in the movie. Like he's really good and really funny, but he gives mm. a performance like he's not a trained actor and he gives a performance very much like 
unlike any other performance that would ever be in a major movie. Well, Steven Soderbergh had his whole streak where he was doing that stuff. The entire film Bubble, he staffed with non-actors and their kind of flat affectless performance is the reason that the film, if you think it works, and I do, works within the context of like true crime because these are not the kind of dramatic readings that you expect from that kind of story it's more real than that hey you know what i'm thinking of now no. you know what i'm thinking of matt farley charles roxburgh movies oh we gotta get back to motorn <laughs> second reference uh oh no that's on our patreon episode actually but yes you're right that those performances i mean on the other hand, I would have to say that someone like um, Kevin McGee... Well, I mean, who knows what he would be like? Oh, I think that um, if you cast him in, like, I don't know, uh, an Adam Sandler film, he could definitely pull it off. <laughs> I thought of Adam Sandler because he shot that Halloween movie in Salem. So, like, come on, get Kevin M- McGee in there. Didn't Hubie Halloween feel a lot like Don't Let the River Beast get It did, you? indeed. Uh, can you imagine Kevin McGee in, like... Uh, the Departed or something like that. It would be so good. Like playing the Martin Sheen role. <laughs> so yeah, this is uh, people's <laughs> weekly reminder to check out the uh, filmography of Charles Roxburgh and Matt Farley. And uh, get Motern on Motern by Will Sloan and Justin DeClue, now available That's on right. Amazon. There is not enough reviews on Amazon. Please, we only have single digits. Push us into the double digits of reviews. <laughs> All right, so that's it for letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? There's one name that's on everyone's lips, and its name is Gabbo. (laughs) (laughs) No, folks, we're talking about David Fincher's new film, Mank. Okay, guys, if you love David Fincher, stay far away from this podcast. (laughs) Like, I'm going to say it right now. But if you actually want to hear our thoughts about it, Check it out. It's at patreon.com slash the important cinema club from two people who have been um, agnostic about David Fincher in the past and also love Orson Welles. What could our reaction be? What could go wrong? So, Will, what are we doing next <laughs> A week? A long time ago on the podcast, years and years and years ago, we did an episode called Big Screen Comedian Failures, where we talked about films made by comedians who had that big push. They made one movie didn't quite go according to plan and they didn't become they didn't become a jim carrey level star we talked about freddie got fingered corky romano some other films and so me and will were pitching around names and we fell upon a linking um element through many of the films that we mentioned and what was that will saturday night live (laughs) yes that's right we're gonna be doing an episode dedicated to the films that spun off Saturday Night Live, specifically the ones that was like their big push for an SNL cast members. So we ain't touching Coneheads, but we will probably be talking about The Ladies' Man. Um, wait, we can't do Night at the Roxbury's, can we? We can't do Night at the Roxbury, but we're doing The Ladies' Man with Tim Meadows. It's Pat, the movie with Julia Sweeney. Oh, I bet that one has aged really well. And we're also going to talk about a movie that I think we both like, MacGruber with Will Forte. Why are these movies failures? Why didn't they take off? I feel like, you know, we just said we won't talk about those SNL movies. We will. You know we will, because this is the opportunity to tackle it. Will we watch them again? You know what? I've never seen Night at the Roxbury's. You know what? I think that all of the movies that we mentioned, except for MacGruber, I've never seen. I've never seen It's Pat. I am psyched. Like, how are they? That's one joke. How are they going to fill a whole movie with one joke? (laughs) Well, we're going to find out next week when we tackle that subject. And until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, 
this is Justin. Just dropping a quick reminder that I'll be hosting a holiday movie mind melter marathon online this Saturday on December 12th, starting at noon. Follow me on Twitter to get more information. I'll be posting updates about it constantly until then. And just to let people know, I'll be showing 24 hours of holiday movies. Yes, Christmas action films, stop motion musicals from around the world, including Japan, Italy, Russia, and a lot of American action films. I hope to introduce new interesting movies to people that haven't heard about them before and to experience old classics with friends. So make sure to join us by following me on Twitter at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Will, the best news has just arrived. We don't got need to go to the movie theaters anymore. They're all going to be able to be watched in our home. Well, if you live in USA or you have other means. Oh, I can't wait. If there's one thing that I have loved doing over the last year, it's staying home, not seeing any friends, and just watching shit on TV while I look at my <laughs> Stuff phone. Stuff that you don't even really want to watch anyway, but it's out, so I guess you'll watch. Exactly. But yes, there were seismic shifts in the film industry this week when warner brothers announced that its entire 2021 slate would debut in theaters and on hbo max simultaneously the fallout was immediate and widespread christopher nolan director of following issued a statement where he said uh, he should have gone with like insomnia right i was trying to go with one of the deeper cut ones and that's what i landed on he issued a statement where he said that Filmmakers, I'm paraphrasing, filmmakers who thought they were making a movie for the best movie studio were actually making movies for the worst streaming service. And I heard him say that and I thought, go off, King. Yes, that's right. Films will be opening day and date in the United States, the entire Warner Brothers catalog. And people are like, this is shocking the cinema scene. Nothing will ever be the same. To that, I have to say, it took much longer than I thought it was going to. Sure, it'll change things. But look at the multiplexes that you walk into that are friggin' 15 theaters. There's three people in them most of the time, except for Tuesdays or Fridays. Yeah, I mean, I I love the theatrical experience, or I used to love the theatrical experience. It's not often particularly rewarding to, like, go to one of the local multiplexes in town and, like, watch a shitty movie with bad projection, and they haven't even masked the screen to the proper aspect ratio, and you're paying 15 bucks. Uh, cinema public cinema going will obviously survive because people like going out and being amongst other people and having shared experiences but what's going to happen is if those movies are able to be viewed at home the cinema experiences are going to try to up their game to make it more valuable to go see this at the cinema as opposed to them being like eh, they're going to come anyway because there's no other choice i mean what's going to happen is that and it's already happening in toronto is that the movie theaters are just going to get sold off to make condos that's what's happening to the scotia bank cinema it's going to be steamrolled and then we'll have one one movie theater in all the downtown and then since the paramount decree has been overturned amazon and disney are going to have their own theaters where they just show amazon and disney movies Well, so i was listening to the empire podcast and somebody wrote an article about this and interviewed people that would be in the positions that would be making those decisions and they say they don't want to get involved in theaters because there's no chance of growth in them and because of the way that like the market works there needs to be a 10 or 15 percent growth and if you buy a cinema and do that it just doesn't interesting work. so what hasn't been solved in this in this issue is the fact that like most of these movies can't make a profit if they're just like thrown onto hbo max also we should point out these movies are going a day and date at home 
Because you are going to die if you go sit with other people right now. That's why. Well, yes, yes. So yeah, that I mean, that's obviously a problem. But it's like, obviously, movie studios have wanted to for a long time figure out a way to cut out the middleman, to not have to deal with movie theaters, to not have to give half their box office revenue to theater owners. They do not give half their box office revenue. They give like one tenth. It's nothing. I mean, it depends on the movie, though, doesn't it? It's like like a new Star Wars movie, they give one tenth, but then some other ones, it's it's half. Yeah, they make a lot of money on their movies. Like the, the theaters, they make their money on the food. That's why it's so expensive. <laughs> I'm not arguing with you. I mean, I think the deal's pretty good, but movie studios don't even like that. But I mean, the problem is that a movie like the new James Bond movie, the Sony Pictures was trying to sell it to a streaming service for $600 million. That's insane. And no streamer would take it, but it probably costs $600 million to make and market. So, you know... HBO Max doesn't seem like the solution to that problem. Here's the thing is that like these movie studios, they could make movies for less money and then, you know, make more of a profit on it, but it'd be a much smaller profit. But it's all about egos and perception. That's not what drives stock markets or shareholders. They want the big giant success that can splash like on the front cover of newspapers and websites. Well, also like high risk, high reward, like the business model made sense. It made sense to spend $500 million on a movie if it was more or less guaranteed to make a billion dollars after it had been released in China. And then the second that's been taken away, the whole business model falls apart. Did you hear that the Paul Davis Anderson Monster Hunter was pulled from China because there was like a really racist joke in it? Oh, really? Uh, racist against who? Uh, the Chinese. It's just like a, du- a dumb pun joke that's said at one point. You can find the clip online. It's being shared on Twitter and stuff like that. So it's like, can they... Um, hedge their bets hoping they'll get into China because not even that many movies get into China in the first place I mean I think that there are certain movies aren't you guys rich enough stop it stop it I feel like Sony Pictures doesn't green light a James Bond movie until they've got a guarantee that it's going to get into China like I don't know yeah but I mean China could just turn around and kick it out in a second right doesn't really matter it's true they can so at the end of the day uh, I I mean it's going to be different but also, they had no choice. It was either that or sit on their movies for a year. I genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I'll be sad that I can't eat that stale popcorn watching Godzilla vs. King Kong with the 3D filter still on, even though it's not in 3D. The idea of seeing that Godzilla vs. Kong movie at home just depresses me so it much. It doesn't depress me. That's where I saw all of the Godzilla movies. All the ones that I like. All the bad ones I saw in the movie theater. Uh, I know, but it's not where I want to see a new one. <laughs> the sound is so muddy. The screen is dark. Like. <laughs> also, it depresses me because I'm probably not even going to like the movie. So I want to at least have an experience out of it. <laughs>